Nothing in this podcast is intended as investment advice, and the people in this podcast may have a position in the stocks they talk about. Do not buy anything based solely on a tip or recommendation or the content of this podcast. Do your own research. So welcome, Oliver Hasler, uh, to the All Points West podcast. Uh, Oliver is the chief executive of PIX Resources. PIX has got a, a stock market listing in Australia and in London. For those that don't know, just a brief explanation of uh, what zircon is. It's a, an opaque, hard-wearing mineral. Uh, it's known for its whiteness, uh, it's also its strength and corrosion resistance. And as a result, it's widely used in ceramics. It's found in tiles, sinks, sanitary ware, tableware. It's also some of its derivatives, zirconia and zirconium, are perhaps better known for their use in producing synthetic gemstone and diamond imitations. But they also have got Huge applications in precision and specialty castings, various refractory applications, catalysts, fuel cells, fiber optics, the list goes on. PIX's main mining areas are at Mandiri and Tisma. They're licensed concession areas that cover an area of around sort of 2,000 and 1,500 hectares, respectively, in central Kalimantan in Indonesia. Now, Oliver, if, could you just tell us why is that location important in the case of Zircon? What's so special about Kalimantan? Well, Kali, as, as you know, and, and you made a very thorough explanation about Zircon, but uh, Zircon is widely used, but there's not enough supply for the actual growing demand. And demand is accelerating also with Zircon being a critical mineral also needed for the transition towards carbon as zero. So the demand is growing and there's not enough supply. Most of the actual supply is coming out of Australia and South Africa, which is reaching, most of the mines are reaching the end of their mine life. And Indonesia and in particular Kalimantan represents the new potential areas where to find zircon. We're the only industrial miners for mineral sands in this area. Important also that it, the fact that it's in Indonesia is because the main customers for mineral sands are in China. They consume 60% of the market. And at this moment in time, China and, and Australia don't have that great of a relation. And Indonesia is the largest Belt and Road country. So China likes buying products out of Indonesia. And Indonesia, from if you look at the entire developing world, has been incredibly stable over the last year. So represents a very solid place in which to do business. Okay, great. So uh, um, give us some background. How long have uh, Mandiri and Tisma been operational? And how and when did PIX become interested in them? We did our original IPO in Australia in February 2020, just when the, the pandemic worldwide started, with Mandiri, with a very high concentration resource, as you mentioned, with two 2,000 hectares of tenement and with 6.5 million tons of inferred uh, resources. The year after, and uh, we acquired Tisma, a second uh, tenement. And in November 2021, we listed in the main market of the London uh, Stock Exchange. So Mandiri has been in production since 2015, which is very different. Uh, it's important to note for investors, we are totally in production. And since we did the IPO in February 2020, we have been focusing operationally to increase the volumes, 
to start the byproducts routine in Illuminate and to drastically reduce the cost by moving from third-party contract mining to our own in-house mining. And strategically, we always said, since we're the only industrial mineral sands miner in the area, we're continuously looking for new tenements, as I believe we can become the consolidator of the mineral sands mining industry in Kalimantan, and with that, dramatically increase our assets. And that leads me on quite nicely. Uh, you know, you mentioned there about ramping up production. PIX has recently secured approval to extract and process 48,000 tonnes of premium zircon this year from uh, from Tisma. Why is that uh, important? Just give listeners a flavour as to why that's so, so important for you guys and how much do you currently extract and process? It is very important for our future. Today, we only Mandiri is in production where we have the right to extract 48,000 tons of zircon, 50 of ilmenite, and 20,000 tons of rutile. Today, we announced that we're allowed to export rutile and ilmenite. So the Mandiri plan has been going as we originally planned it in our five-year plan. So we're increasing volumes. We started with the production of byproducts, and over the next weeks, we will start the export. TISMA represents our future. We are not in production yet but we're fully licensed. So as we continue growing with Mandiri, potentially the board could decide to start production on Tisma. So what it does is just gives us in a great mining place in Kalimantan with huge resources, the potential to increase our production in the future. And with that evaluation of our company. What's the uh, what's the timeline on, on Tisma? When do you foresee that happening? We don't have a timeline. The entire plan is to focus so far on Mandiri. We're growing. We have cash in the bank. We have no debt. And we're growing organically. So Tisma is just an option, basically. We have been very cautious not to spend too much money and to go too fast based on the actual social political situation in the world. I think that was an intelligent decision. But as we grow Mandiri and generate uh, resources, the board could decide to accelerate and start the production in Tisma. But as you mentioned at the beginning, we have a huge resource. Uh, Mandiri has 6.5 million tons. So we could decide to do it or, or continue to grow at the step we are. It just increases our potential growth. So um, just to focus on you now for a bit, um, when did you join PIX and what attracted you to the business? I joined uh, PIX at the beginning, so in February 2020. As, as you know, I have been industrial heavy industry restructuring person in Europe all my life. I've been in the metal industry, in the glass industry, in coffee. My last job was in the paper pulp and foresting industry where I restructured a, a very large paper business. And then I decided to move to Asia. I was always fascinated and always did uh, business in Asia. I moved to Asia and then a group uh, investment bank approached me telling me that they had a client that had a, a, a mine in Indonesia and was looking for a way of adding value. So I looked at it, did a due diligence, everything that had an impact on valuation I did with international companies, which in Indonesia, you end up dealing with Australians. So we dealt with engineering firms, where ge geologists to do the York report and auditors in Australia. And actually it was an incredible, valuable resource with a very high concentration of zircon. And 
that's when I got excited at, uh, of the project. I added some more sophisticated international Singaporean investors. We very fastly listed in Australia. And as I mentioned, bought a second tournament and now are also listed in the main market of the London Stock Exchange, which has given us a very strong uh, visibility and, and has strongly added to our liquidity. I was going to come on to your background because, as, as you've kind of hinted that there, you've you've had a, a very interesting career. You, I think it's probably fair to say that you're not the average mining CEO who kind of came through geology or earth sciences route. So at age 22, you were actually an officer in the Swiss Army. How did that experience help to shape you and what did it teach you? I think the incredible part of an army and, and in particular Swiss Army is you start acting in the army when you're 19, when you're 22, you're an officer and you're already leading people. So at that age, to have the opportunity to have 120 people in front of you and, and having to motivate them and, and going through all the tough course you do in the army, I think is an incredible, probably the best management school you can find in the world. So I think the best, best part of the, the army is the tools they give you in management at a very early age. So we're talking about leadership, aren't we? You know, leading a group of people, essentially. That was your education. Absolutely, because I was studying material engineering, physics and chemistry of metals, plastics and ceramics. I was a, in the, I, I finished with a master degree, uh, wanting to do a doctor degree and end up in a laboratory, probably doing research and or, or development. And really in the army, I realized that my true vocation was leading people to reach high goals. And that's what I've done all my life. So you mentioned that I'm not the classical CEO of a mining company, but I don't think I was the classical CEO of a metal group or, 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 or glass company or in the same coffee or in the paper. At the end, what you have to do is motivate people towards very aggressive goals and, and reach them there. And then you can find it around the expertise you need uh, to complement in each one of the areas. Yeah. So clearly having that kind of uh, passion ignited, uh, that leadership passion with the Swiss Army, you you leave and then you, you've enjoyed a pretty varied career path and, and been pretty successful, actually. You, you, you helped to redefine the strategy of Dow Egbert's professional division and its joint venture with uh, the US-based Mondelez. You led the restructuring of Arc International, which is part of the French tableware giant. And more recently, you oversaw the three-year transformation of Europac from a small publicly traded Spanish firm into a mid-cap international firm, tripling the share price uh, before selling the business for $2 billion. So there's a common thread there. You clearly enjoy transforming businesses in order to create value. So my question for you now is what's the transformation play at PIX? Because that's clearly what you enjoy doing. Oh, absolutely. And PIX was, was not even a mine. It was a piece of land where, where the original owners thought that there was a valuation. And we dreamt a very aggressive goal of becoming the fifth largest producer of zircon. That's a very aggressive goal when you look at this industry from zero to 48,000. We listed in a very short time, less than 12 months. It was a very successful listing. It was oversubscribed. We bought another tenement. We, we listed in the main market of the London Stock Exchange. Uh, we, our stock valuation has grown. We're over a hundred million pounds company today. So I think it was to start a dream from absolute zero to working into this continuous growth of volume where we are becoming one of the players in the zircon and mineral source arena. So I think it's exactly the same thing we have always done. 
we have dreamt very large dreams and then we built a very clear path and, and look for a very disciplined way of following it. And I think it, with the announcements we have done over the last four years, you can see that we are very consistent in, in what we say and, and what we deliver. Yeah. Now, I think I'm right in saying that you've previously said, in fact, you might have said it to me previously, you know, you enjoy leading, but you also enjoy putting experts around you who sort of, and putting them in the right place so that, you know, and giving them ownership so that they can get on with their job. You know, you don't need to kind of micromanage everything and, and you quite like giving over that responsibility to, to experts in that field. That, does that still, is that still the case for you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, mining is a complex uh, business. It demands a level of expertise. Uh, there's very, very uh, sophisticated professional companies in this arena, which, which we face in business every day. So for that, we need in all the different areas to have the, the right people uh, from, from the mining and, ge and, and geological side of it to the industrial part going through uh, the financial part and the sales part. At the end, we're selling also in a worldwide network. So absolutely. Where, where do you think this enjoyment of transforming companies and their fortunes comes from? I must have it. I've, I've, myself, as, as when I grew up, as, as, as you mentioned, I've changed a lot. I, I grew up, in, I'm a Swiss citizen. I grew up in Mexico. I studied in Switzerland, uh, started my career in a, in a publicly listed company in New York. Then I moved to London. Then I worked, changed industries to glass in France. I did a rich restructuring there. Then I moved to Holland. Then I moved to Spain into the paper industry. So I think all my life, I have been moving myself from one culture to the other, learning one language to another in different industries. And also, I've always been in heavy industries, which you know over the last 40 years have gone through continuous restructuring, looking for innovation in new areas of growth. So it has been a very, very tough market and very difficult to be successful. So I think between one is the way I, I grew up and, and I received my education and the other way is the type of world I was facing in the type of industry uh, that I landed. Now, I'm glad you touched on your uh, your upbringing there. Um, can I, if you don't mind, just take you back to your childhood just briefly? I know you had a fairly international upbringing. As you said, you're a, a Swiss citizen, but you moved to Mexico City, uh, I think, age six could you just tell me about growing up in Mexico City and the impact that that had on you, how you came to be there and the impact of Mexico? Well, I moved but with six years old. I was following, obviously, my father. My father was, was an international expat that they moved to Mexico. And I think what it changes is, as you well know, Swiss were very disciplined, punctual, sometimes cold people. Then we arrived to a culture that's totally different. It's another language, very warm people, very friendly, very big families, very close families. So you know, on one side I'm an engineer, on the other side I'm very good with people. I can lead them. I understand dealing in, with developing in third world countries. So I think I had two total different worlds and both of them I received a very positive package. On one side, the Swiss background also, which ended up with my education, but also this this Mexican uh, familiar country background. And also Mexico being a developing country, there was other challenges. I mean, it was one of the first countries going through hyperinflation, which gives you very strong lessons in, in, in life. So managing people in Switzerland, I mean, managing people in Mexico, and at the same time working for international 
uh, listed companies. I, give, I think it gives you a big array of, of experience in total different areas and helps you adapt to different situations. Now, you, you said that, there that you followed your dad because of his job there. Could you, for the benefit of the listeners, could you just tell us what your mum and dad did when, uh, when you were younger? Sure. My father worked for a company in those days called Bramboveri, afterwards moved to, uh, was uh, fused with, with ASEA and became ASEA Bramboveri, which was the first huge fusion of two industrial conglomerates. And, and that's brought them there. They, they, I think they sold the first uh, subway line, so the actual motor for the subway in the country, but they also did metallurgical uh, power plants, etc. It was a type of General Electric based in Switzerland. So, I mean, essentially, he was there to build the, the subway in Mexico City. Is that, is that right? Sure. At least supplying the, the, the vehicle. Yeah. The traction. Yeah. You mentioned in the past that uh, you were quite a sporty child. Does that still play an influence in your life now? Yes, absolutely. I was always very competitive, loved sports, did all type of, of sports from, from athleticism to, to handball to tennis. And I loved uh, all track sports. And when I got older in my 40s, I did several marathons. The result of doing so much sport was also to, I hurt my both of my knees, but I still try to do a lot of tracking. I, I, I walk a lot. I spend a lot of time in the gym. So I do like sports. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about school. Where did you go to school? Were you a good student? Were you academic? Yes, I was. I, I did all my education until high school in, in Mexico. So I changed from speaking German at home. Uh, I learned Spanish. Then I went to, to English, being in an international school. I moved to Switzerland where I studied material engineering, so physics and chemistry, did a master degree in metallurgy and when i moved back to mexico my first uh, job i did an mba so i was always academic i i always worked hard i always tried to be number one in whatever i did sports or at work but i think i was also very sociable and as you mentioned did sports so i, I believe i've always had a very uh, balanced life so i work hard when you have to work hard uh, but I like going out with, with my friends and today with my family, practicing sports or, or seeing the world. So I do believe I've always uh, found balance. Oliver, just to, uh, just to tie this up, um, if, could you just tell us where do you live now and um, what do you do to relax outside of work? I live in, in Hong Kong, which is an ideal base. It's, it's easy to get to Australia. I spend half of my time in Indonesia, where I come every month. We're also listed in London at the biggest market in China. So Hong Kong is a wonderful uh, city in which to be uh, based. On, on my free time, I travel a lot. My, I have a daughter in, in London. I have a son living and working in Hong Kong. So at the end, our family reunions uh, are in different parts of the world. So we enjoy traveling and, and seeing new parts of the world. Uh, we do a lot of tracking over the weekends, which is a national sport in, in Hong Kong. There's beautiful sights. I enjoy the beach. I enjoy uh, reading and, and, and I have a very social life. I, I like meeting uh, people in the international arena, which there's a lot of in, in, in Hong Kong. I think you previously said to me that you developed a taste for fine wines as well. Is that, uh, is that still the case? Absolutely. I do like good wines. I lived many years in France where I learned it. I lived many years in, in Spain that have excellent wines as well. And I've, I've kept my taste uh, for, for good wines. Do you have any ambitions to own your own vineyard at any point in the future? 
That's a very nice dream, but once you get into the detail, it's another very, very tough business. So that would be a total project like all the ones I did in the past. So it would not, for sure not be a retirement project because there's no way you can relax around such a project. So I don't know. Well, trans transformational projects have never scared you off in the past. So um, watch this space, I suppose. Oliver, listen, many thanks for your time this morning and good luck with picks. Thank you, Carl. Take care. Talk to you soon. <laughs>